This is Hypercritical, episode number 17. There's a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. We know no bounds. What can be complained about by my co-host, John Syracuse. I'm Dan Benjamin. We'd like to thank FreshBooks.com and also OmniGroup.com for making this show possible. I'll tell you more about them as we go on. Hi, John. Hey, Dan. You're a little. You're telling me you're a little bit under the, perhaps a little under the weather. Your throat was not uh, feeling great, but you're you sound okay. I think I still sound a little bit croakier than usual. But and who? Yeah, just when you thought it wasn't possible to sound croakier, here you are. Yes, for the people who are listening for the first time, I usually sound croaky, but not quite this croaky. More Kermit than croak, and more. So you've gone fully from frog to toad. Sure, that's, <laughs> that's where you want to go with that. That's where I'm going. I'm going to jot that down as a potential title. All right. Can't have the title within the first two seconds. Although maybe, maybe we There's can. There's no rules. Today's show, we don't really have a main topic. Did you know that? I, I did not know that. I did not know that. I've got a couple of topics left on my list, but I don't really feel like hacking my way through any of them today. Uh, but I think we have more than enough follow-up and small topics that we will fill uh, an hour. And maybe it won't be a long show today because I don't know how much talking I have left in me. Well, I will, uh, I will fill in for you if you, you know, if you, if you have to go cough or clear your throat or lay down, I will assist are, you in that. Are you going to do the voice? <laughs> You're going for me. You got to do my voice. I, I'm not, I'm not capable. I can try, but I don't think so. I got to get Merlin to do an impression of me. Well, if do we have any FU? Because if we don't, if we don't have very much FU, I can, I can suggest a topic. I have. No, like, we have, we have a lot. Oh. So let's. Get, what kind of question is that? Let's get right to it. All right. So last week we talked about TV and TV technology. And uh, as I usually do, uh, you know, after recording, uh, you got you edited the show, put it up the same day, and right. I downloaded it onto my iPod and listened to it. Uh, and while listening to it, I realized uh, in a couple of the sections where I was talking about technical things that I screwed up the explanations. I don't know why I screwed them up because listening to myself, I said, wait, no, that's not how it works. I think I was going... Too closely off my notes that I pulled from Wikipedia. Oh yeah, should have been. You know, I should have learned. Don't just go verbatim on Wikipedia. But anyway, then I'm thinking, oh, as soon as the, everyone else listens to this thing, I'm going to get a flood of mail telling me how I screwed up. And then you know, so one day passed, no mail about. Yeah, it. all week long, you're like, I'm still not getting an email. Two days, no, nobody's mailing about it. I'm like, well, I get, we're getting mail about like, please talk more about programming topics. <laughs> nothing, nothing about. Uh, the TV stuff. So I guess the, the video files are not listening to my podcast, but I felt bad about that. But then finally, on like the, the end of day three, someone named Stu Mashowitz, I'm maybe screwing up his last name, I'm sorry. It, well, the one and only person three days later who wrote in and called me on messing up my technical explanation. So the part that I messed up was in my description of Judder, which is the, what they call the jerky motion that you see on, on televisions under some, some circumstances. And I was trying to describe how, as part of my description of how LCD television sets use motion compensation to interpolate between frames of video and create new frames that didn't actually exist, and that interpolation makes a smoothing effect. That was the title of the episode. So right, far. correct. Now that's bad. Um, and I was trying to explain why they didn't just show the first frame uh, repeatedly and then show the next frame repeatedly and so on and so forth, and, and why, why motion interpolation exists. And here's what I screwed up. I screwed up the, the description of why it looks jerky um and the the key part was not that it's just drawing the same frame over and over again and then immediately drawing the next frame it's that especially on early lcd television sets 
they would draw the first frame, for example, some number of times, and they draw the second frame a different number of times. And it was because the refresh rate of the LCD screen was not an even multiple of the frame rate of the source material. So, for example, if you had a 60 hertz LCD, which were common way back when, and you had a 24 frame per second source material, you would have to do what they call three to two pull down, where you show the first frame three times, and the second frame two times, and the third frame three times. And that, that unevenness would cause a jerkiness that, that uh, was unpleasing to the eye and it would look, not look correct. Um, so Stu corrected me. I should really just read his entire email, but I won't because it's long. That was uh, a very long. That was almost the kind of email you write, lengthwise. Yeah. And, uh, but these days, LCD televisions have higher refresh rates that are even multiples of 24 and 30 frames per second. So that's not much of an issue. Now, they still have separate de-judder and uh, motion compensation controls on most TVs because what they do want to do is make sure that they you know, show a frame an even number of times uh, and not you know, on some frames more than others. And then there's a separate control for the thing where it says, do you want me to interpolate between the frames? Um, he also brought up something that uh, I remember using his email or somebody else's that uh, projectors nowadays actually have uh, little blades on the, on their uh, shutter things that, that simulate uh, uh, you know a shutter control. So instead of showing a frame just once, they will show a frame, blank it out, show the same frame, blank it out, show the same frame, blank it out one more time mm. to give that movie theater flickery type effect. Uh, and this is the part that, that was correct on the, on the past show, I thought, was that this whole idea of flickery picture, it's more of a cultural thing than a technological thing. And that if you were brought up in the generation where you, you uh, expected 24 frame per second flickery strobing light, and that's your feeling of movies, when you see something that's not like that, it feels wrong to you. And it's not, it's not like the picture is bad or there's something inherently bad about it. It's, it's pretty much just what you're used to. And that's why... Uh, all this technology exists, you know, obviously showing frames an uneven number of times is bad no matter what, but everything else is really just, let's make this not look like uh, Telemundo or whatever. We want, I want it to look like uh, Star Wars or The Godfather, and I remember that as being 24 frames flickering on the screen. Uh, and he had, a, he had a URL that he sent me, I think it was to his own blog. Uh, what was the title of it? I put it in the show notes already. I think it was like, your TV is ruining movies or something to that effect which was a good summary of all the issues we talked about, about uh, calibration and uh, motion compensation and all the things you should do with TVs. He came down the same side as me saying that, uh, that plasmas generally give you a better picture for less money still these days, especially since they don't, you don't have to deal with all of the, uh, the motion compensation stuff, which is so prevalent on the LCD screens. Uh, so I would suggest uh, if people want to learn more about this, they should follow that URL in the show notes. I think, uh, I think it, it's worth mentioning that it, you, one of the things that people are buying these kinds of TVs for is to recreate the theater experience in their house, in their home, in their home theater. A lot of people just throw them in the living room like we do, but there are a lot of people who will have a special theater room or a special, you know, they're lucky enough to have something like that. And they get it and then they see the little soap opera people and they're like, well, what's, what's going on? And it, feel, it feels wrong. I don't think it's just a cultural thing. I think people want to feel like what they're watching is representative of the way that it looked, whether it's a new movie or whether it's the Godfather. I'm not saying I totally disagree with you there, but I think, I think in general people would rather, are you, are you saying that there's people out there who would prefer the soap opera effect, even on uh, a, a true movie and not just, not just an HD football game, but something they would have seen six months earlier in the movie theater. They want, they want it to look like, like there's somebody out there who likes that. I think the, the, the non-subjective argument would be that 
anything that does interpolation is adding information that wasn't there, wasn't put there by the creator. So no matter what kind of things, this, you know, if the movie was filmed in 24 frames per second on film and meant to be projected off of film, anything you do that alters that is like, well, that's not what the guy made. Like, you know, Francis Ford Coppola didn't make 60 frames per second Godfather, right? So if you're looking at something like 60 frames per second Godfather and the vast majority of those frames are interpolations between frames that were never actually, you know, put onto celluloid, then you're kind of making up your own thing there. That would be the, you know, non-subjective explanation. Regardless of how you think it looks, the mm. reality is that the, the, the machine is making up information that did not previously exist. Right. Uh, the subjective explanation... I mean, that's interesting because a lot of people were bringing up, and I, I should have thought of this as well, that uh, you know, things are being filmed in higher frame rates now with sor- you know, from the source material, not just like HD television shows, which are, I think, framed at 30 frames per second at the very least these days, but also things like, uh, like The Hobbit, which is filming now, is being filmed on f- at 48 frames per second. And that'll be interesting because you, at that point, you can't say, well, the source material is supposed to be 24. Even if The Hobbit is mostly projected at 24 frames per second, right. it's recorded at 48. And so they have that extra information there. So if you play that on your fancy TV, wouldn't you want to see the 48 frames per second that were recorded by the creators of this product? And then, But then would, the it, case, would it look like well, a yeah, film exactly. or a soap opera? Right. So, well, I would imagine that since they're kind of being guinea pigs in this area, that they'll look at their dailies and they'll decide, you know, they're, they're the same people as we are. You know, they're similar ages. They grew up in the same era that we did. They'll look at it and say, does this look good? Do we like it? Do we have to change the lighting? Is there something else that we have to do? You know, you can do lots of post-processing. Like maybe we'll just capture 48 frames per second if we need to. I like to have all those for digital cameras. They have all those film grain filters where you can, you know, add film grain that wasn't there to make things feel more comfortable for you. Like, you know, they're, they're the creators and I'm going to trust them to create something they think is pleasing to the audience. And I, I don't think, you know, oh, it has to be 24, it shouldn't be 48. In fact, I think the, the limitations of 24 frames per second, uh, you know, influence the way movies are made. Because, for example, you won't see fast camera pans uh, in 24 frames per second video because it will, you know, look like a big mess. You have to pan. The maximum rate you can pan and still be, and still be readable on the screen is pretty darn slow. So now when you double that frame rate, maybe you can pan past something quickly and expect people to be able to read the text on the side of a van or something mm. as a plot point, right? right? Whereas before, you could never do that. So... New avenues, I think, open in movie making when, when the limitations and technology are removed. Uh, and I think it's up to the creators to decide what the most appropriate use of that technology is. How, how do they take advantage of it but not fall into those traps of making it look like Judge Judy or something? Okay. So, uh, a couple more minor points on TV. Uh, something a couple people brought up that I should have you mentioned. You sound kind of cool like this with this gravelly... Yeah, I guess I wouldn't call it gravelly, but yeah, it doesn't feel cool, let me tell you. Uh, when you buy television, we already went through like how it's probably calibrated, not the way you want it, and how you should do some minimal amount of calibration to right, get it uh, right, reasonable. Right. But one really important thing for calibration, and some sets don't even have this adjustment, which is really bad, uh, is that in the days of CRTs, uh, there was a thing called overscan, where the, sometimes like the plastic frame of the television would cover the edges of the glass tube in the CRT because they knew that the edges of that glass tube, the picture is all messed up. It's like all warped because the tube is shaped like a bubble and as you get closer to the edges, the convergence goes off and everything looks like a mess. So they would cover the edges of the screen with some sort of plastic trim piece and what you would see is what's left in the middle. Uh, Now as screen technology advanced, they had to do less of that, but there was still the concept of displaying the picture larger than the the, uh, the, the size of the tube 
so that you didn't worry about that, you know, stuff on the edges got cut off, but it was garbage anyway. And this is basically baked into, you know, all television broadcasts. Like when they put a little logo in the corner saying you're watching Fox or whatever, they never put that in the corner corner because right. they know that it would be cut off by the frames of a lot of people's televisions. Well, in HD TVs, this is a moot point because they have flat screens and in theory, with any flat screen technology, the pixel in the corner can look just as good as the pixel dead center. So there's no reason to cut off any of the image. But a lot of screen, a lot of HDTVs still ship with overscan on where they will take the, the image. Let's say it's like 1920 by whatever the uh, or 1080 by 1920. Is that the 1080p resolution? Yeah. They'll take that image and they will zoom it up just slightly. So there's like an inch, you know, or whatever that's pushing out on the edge. And they will just show you the inner, you know, take off an inch on the frame and just show the inner thing stretched to fill your HDTV screen. Uh, and sometimes they're doing that because... If you watch for over-the-air broadcasts or cable broadcasts or especially standard-def broadcasts over HD, you'll see at the very, very top of the image or the very, very bottom, like this little white fuzzy line looks like static moving back and forth where the image gets screwed up because like, I don't even know what's from, compression or something like that. Someone will write in and tell me what that little white fuzzy thing is, but, but it's there. So <laughs> TVs ship with overscan turned on because they don't want people getting their TV home, putting on a TV show, and seeing that little white fuzzy thing at the top of the screen moving back and forth. And they're going, oh, my TV's broken. I'm trying to watch, you know, Everybody Loves Raymond coming up in the chat room. Trying to watch Everyone Loves Raymond reruns, and this is white thing, fuzzy thing scrubbing around on my screen. And I never saw that on my old TV, which, of course, was a CRT that had overscan or a plastic frame around it. But now I see it on my HDTV. It's broken. So they ship them all, zoomed in slightly. Now, I hate that. I hate the idea... That I mean, I already complained about the rounded corners on the QuickTime player. I hate not seeing every single pixel that I'm paying for. I pay for a 1080p screen. I want you to take that that image and zoom it up a little bit more and cut off the edges. First of all, you're making everything blurrier by zooming it slightly. And second, what if there's something interesting happening in those corners? I want the whole image. So most good TVs have a setting somewhere buried in advance where they'll say something like the size of the screen or overscan on off. On Panasonic, it's obscurely named size two it ships in size one and size two you just have to know is the one where they don't cut off the edges so if you switch from size one to size two suddenly the picture shrinks and then the edges fill in uh and i've always had my tv set to size two and i recommend everybody do that and i would also recommend people simply not watch standard def programming you know if that little white fuzzy thing bothers you because it's not there on hd broadcast or it shouldn't be anyway no it shouldn't be yeah well, so, there's an, there's another slightly related issue that can happen with with overscan, and that is when you're connecting uh, a computer, for example, a, a Mac Mini. A lot of people use those as their home entertainment machines. A lot of the time when you're connecting, you'll see the little overscan checkbox in the display preferences when you're setting the display options. And if you ever happen to connect a Mac Mini to a screen and it doesn't seem to fill the whole, or any any Mac in general, you connect to, and it doesn't fill the whole screen with the image, you may have to either check or uncheck that overscan box to make it fit appropriately. Have you ever yeah, done that? Sometimes it's trying to compensate. Like if your yeah. television doesn't have that adjustment, it's like, all right, your television sucks and whatever image I send it, it's <laughs> going to stretch it and cut off the edges. So I'm going to shrink the image that I send to the television to compensate. That's like multiple. I mean, I guess you have to do it so you can see your dock or the menu bar or whatever. But yeah. that's just error on top of error. What and you and, want and there's something your- even weirder. There's something even weirder. And that is on the Magnavox uh uh, TVs that I've had. I have two older Magnavox TVs before I made the the switch to Samsung. And oddly, if you connect, let's say you have your let's say you have your Mac Mini or something with an HDMI output or DVI to HDMI output plugged in, you may not even be able to access this option. But oddly, 
if you go into the description, because Magnavox has in their menus the ability to change the description of the device that's connected. So let's say Auxiliary 1 or HDMI 2 is actually your Mac Mini, let's say. If you go and change the description of HDMI 2, there's a little place where it lets you put in the description. If you pick PC, which is one of the, you can't like name it yourself. You have to pick DVD or PC PC or VCR or whatever the options are. If you pick PC, it will straighten out the overscan and make it work, just work. Isn't that strange? And it's, this yeah, is that's the, why you have to like look up your model of terrible. TV and know what words to Google for. Google for like overscan or, yeah. or you know, yeah, PC, like... They don't make it easy. No. That's an example of where your TV might not have that setting, but if you change it to PC, suddenly it magically changes. Maybe that's buried in your manual somewhere, but it's worth digging that up. And it's not like you need to adjust it back and forth. Just set it to show me show me every single pixel that you're getting over the wire and then just never change it again and set it that way for all inputs, if possible. If not, then, yeah, you gotta you got to look up these little tricks. So one other point on on TVs are actually a, a meta point. A lot of, of course, everyone who owns a plasma is like, yeah, right on. I love plasmas too. I'm happy I bought one instead of an LCD. And, and then the LCD owners feel bad. As I tried to point out on the show uh, last week, it's not like you should never buy an LCD TV. I was only saying that if if you want to get the best possible picture in a, in a non-projector television set, you know, the best that money can buy you still end up buying a plasma these days. I mean, it's the very best, you know, if you have unlimited money and say, I want a television set that's not a projector, that's, you know, maybe 40 or 50 inches or something around that size, like not the size of a room or something, that has the best possible picture the money can buy, the answer is still plasma. Now, if you're shopping in the middle of the price range, all sorts of other factors come in because it may be that a cheaper plasma is not as good as a cheaper LCD in the aspects that you're interested in. And certainly the plasmas are hotter and bigger and more expensive and like all sorts of other things become factors when your top priority is not image quality. All I was saying is that if you are shopping at the top of the range, uh, plasmas are still king. Uh, and I didn't get to mention this on the show, but there's a, you've mentioned it on, on the talk show, I think. There's a, there's a legendary plasma television set from many years ago, back when Pioneer was making plasma TVs called the, the Kuro Elite, K-U-R-O Elite something or other. Uh, Pioneer made a, made a line of plasmas that for a very, very long time, had the best image quality you could buy in a television set, regardless of technology. And uh, Pioneer stopped making plasmas, and they sold their business to Panasonic, which is a lot of the reason that Panasonic has great plasmas these days. Uh, but for many years after Pioneer stopped selling these things, the, the Kuro Elite was still the top-rated picture quality of any television that any of these AV companies had ever tested. And even mm. to this day, some people will say that the Kuros are better than the current ones. I think the Kuros had other problems in terms of like dithering with the... Uh, uh, the pixels and the plasma display and stuff that I don't think they're up to modern standards, but it was just interesting that there was kind of a period where a discontinued television was the best that money could buy. <laughs> uh, or you could still buy the 60-inch model, I believe, for many years, but uh, they discontinued most of the other models. Um, so it's a strange world in TVs where, you know, these LCDs were becoming popular and, and that's all the news was about, but then, you know, the, the video files knew that if you wanted something, wanted the best, you had to get a plasma and sometimes you had to get a plasma that wasn't even made anymore. Uh, so speaking of plasmas, I mentioned uh, the problems with burn-in and how they're much less of a problem nowadays. So, mm-hmm. uh, so sure enough, someone tweeted to me a picture of their plasma television with an image burned into it. And I <laughs> asked them about it. I said, well, you know, is that just image retention or is it burn-in? Like uh, if, you, if you leave the TV off, does it go away? Or a lot of plasmas actually have a mode where they will sw- swipe a, a white bar across a black screen for a couple minutes to try to reset the pixels, you know. He said, no, he's tried all those things. Leaving it off doesn't make a difference. It's burned in. Uh, I put a picture of it in the show notes. Uh, I should have mentioned that with my Plasma TV, 
I am pretty paranoid about burning, even though I know it's less of a problem. I do not leave the room with the television on, paused on an image, ever, ever, ever. Mm. And not only that, but I don't watch 4 by 3 programming if I can help it. And if I do have to watch like a kid's program, I always stretch it into like, you know, fat people mode. Uh, because and I do they not don't, want They don't carbs. care, right? Yeah, kids don't care. And even me, even when I'm watching anything that's 4 by 3 I will zoom or stretch. For example, I have to watch, uh, I watch uh, Top Gear on BBC America, but I don't get BBC America in HD because, I don't know, nobody in America seems to have BBC America in HD. And they broadcast it letterboxed in 4 by 3 So I zoom that so that the black bars go off the top and bottom of my screen and the thing goes edge to edge. And just, it's just making it even blurrier, but I, I, I do not want any part of my screen to be static. If you're not ready to sign up for that kind of paranoia, if you want to be able to pause your TV and go eat lunch and come back, maybe plasma is not for you. Uh, if you look at the picture of the burn in the show notes, it's not, it's really hard to see. He says you can only see it if you make the screen 100% green, and then you can pick it up. So I guess the green pixel, sub-pixels were the only ones that overheated. It's really dim, uh, and he said he got it from playing two or three hours of, of, of uh, NCAA football uh, every night for a couple of months. Uh, and that's the type of a game where you have like a HUD on the screen. Right, and it's always so, in the same yeah. place. And, exactly, and, yeah. that, and that's what burned in. That and the EA logo, so they probably left it on the title screen for a long time. So I'd say, you know, even though burning is less of a problem, it still exists. And if you're going plasma, it's just going to be part of the care and feeding of the thing. Uh, not to mention that you shouldn't leave your TV paused on any image when you're not in the room anyway, just because it wastes electricity. And don't be one of those people who leaves their TV on 24 hours a day when there's nobody in the room. So let me just add uh, one comment from the perspective of a slightly more typical person than you when it comes to, to TV stuff. Uh I've got an LCD TV and it looks great. Every my whole family loves it. We watch it stuff on it. Don't worry about burning. Seems fine. Movies look good. Regular shows look good. We leave it in four by three when it's four by three. We don't ever think about anything. We don't leave it on when we're not in the room. And it's not always on when we are in the room. Have you heard about burning on LCDs? I don't no. Obviously, it wouldn't be burn, burn in, but I've seen I images, re- images retained it. on computer screens. I'm not, I have no idea what the mechanism is for that happening. I don't know. But I, I have actually seen it. Maybe it's not a phenomenon that applies to modern screens, or maybe it doesn't apply to television screens. I don't know. Certainly, you don't hear about it most of the time. But I have actually seen, like, for example, a laptop screen or a desktop screen that when you unplug it from the wall and it's completely turned off, you can still see, like, you know, the Windows start menu along the bottom <laughs> of it. I, I have not seen that. And uh, the TV's fine. Yeah. So don't um, don't be. Well, here's all I'm saying is you can have a wonderful experience watching regular old LCD TV. Gather the family around, watch a movie. It'll be fun. You don't need the plasma. Yeah, it's still it's, the backlighting situation still bugs me a little bit though. That's fine because it's just they're so expensive for dynamic backlighting. You have the halos and everything, and if you don't get the dynamic backlight, it's tough to match the black levels. And again, I would say just pick it, whatever your price range. Just pick it and then compare the TVs on their merits in that price range. Uh, if I just went to Amazon, top, I said, "Here's what I want to spend. What can I get?" And I picked it. If you're, if you're that type of person who just goes, yeah. If you're not that type of person who researches for six months before you make it for a purchase, then yeah, just go to the store and buy. I it. used to I used to research. Now that I have a kid, I'm just that. Whatever works. Well, I, I research based on the amount of money I'm spending. I'm not going to research buying like a vegetable peeler. But if I'm buying, you know, a thousand dollar TV, I'm going to spend a little bit more. I read, you know, research it for a few hours. You get a, I got to be a man of action now. I have a family. Yes, yes. All right. Uh, I have some questions about the type of types of 3D. I, I kind of poo pooed 3D and said it was dumb. I still think it is. Uh, but someone asked about polarized versus those active shutter glasses. It basically boils down to the same thing. It's a way of getting uh, one image to your left eye and a different image to your right eye. 
So the active shutter thing just closes your left eye by blanking out the uh, the uh, pane of uh, LCD glass on the glasses or whatever it is, and then closes the left eye and does that really fast so you don't notice. The polarized glasses that you wear in movie theaters are polarized in different directions, and then the projector projects light polarized in one direction for your left eye and different light right on top of it for your right eye, and the polarized glasses only let in the right light rays, you know, the light rays for left to the left and the right to the right. Uh, the only big downside of the polarized is that you tend to get a lower brightness because there's a maximum brightness that the projectors can't go above before they melt a hole in the projection room. And once you have to have half the light going to your right eye and half the light going to your left eye, the the picture gets dimmer. Uh, and you don't, I don't think you get that with active shutter. I'm assuming that it's full brightness for each eye and it's just alternating, but maybe like the, the cumulative brightness is still half because one, each eye is blanked out for half the time. Uh, but really, it's just, it's, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Uh, let's see. Other minor points. That we were asking what ARM stood for. Someone wrote in, I said uh, Acorn Risk Machines, and someone wrote in and said actually it's Advanced Risk Machines. A little bit more Wikipedia digging uh, showed that it started out as Acorn Risk Machines, and they changed it to Advanced, presumably after Acorn sort of fell out of fashion. I don't think there are many people outside the UK who even know what Acorn computers were. Mm. Uh, but they existed. But anyway, today it is Advanced Risk Machine, uh, even though it was originally Acorn Risk Machines. Okay. Uh, this thing, this is two shows back. I'd mentioned OpenGL 3.2. Oh, two shows Lion. back now. Three shows back, something like that. Uh, and I said that the OpenGL 3.2 is going to be the, the core, uh, uh, some sort of core library where presumably vendors would be allowed to override stuff. Apparently that core designation does not mean that Apple is just providing a core functionality and then video card vendors and game makers can override stuff. What it does mean is that a, the OpenGL group is providing this, what they call the core profile, that leaves behind a lot of legacy functions for, that you know were introduced into OpenGL long ago that really shouldn't be used anymore. So what, what you can choose to, choose to do if you use the core profile is you're giving up 100% compatibility with OpenGL from like 1992 uh, in exchange for presumably a more streamlined and perhaps faster library that doesn't have to support all those old functions and just supports the functions that modern applications should be using. I hope to learn more about this, like, uh, you know, when WWC rolls around, if Apple really is big on uh, changing their OpenGL stack and see what the details are. But uh, this little bit of information just dissuaded me from my notion that it's going to mean that game vendors can uh, ship their own OpenGL stacks or drivers with Mac games. All right, so the final piece of follow-up I have, and it's probably a long one. Maybe it will take us for the rest of the show, but we'll see. Well, then, then let's do our sponsor, our first sponsor. All right, go for it. Okay, this, and you'll like this one. This episode is sponsored by the Omni Group. These guys are the creators of productivity applications. They do it exclusively for Mac OS X, iPhone, and iPad. They're known for their awesome software, for their gold standard customer support, and uh, what is frequently described as palpable geekery. And one of my favorite Omni Group apps is OmniFocus. This is a, a really cool application. It's designed to quickly capture your thoughts and it lets you store and manage and process them into to-do items. So it's really good for the whole getting things done system, but I don't use that myself, I, but it works with any task management style that you have. You can organize your actions by work mode, uh, phone calls, emails, errands, or you can create whole projects that keep everything related. Uh, and now they, they have uh, syncing. You can do this over your local network or you can use the, the cloud to sync, whether it's MobileMe or your own hosted WebDAV server. Uh, it's very cool. OmniFocus is available today for Mac, iPhone, and iPad. You can check it out at omnigroup.com or go to the iTunes store and type in uh, OmniFocus or the App Store, type in OmniFocus. Thanks very much to those guys for making the show possible. Do check it out. 
omnigroup.com. All right, what's your last FU? Oh, and by the way, we got an email from somebody asking us to not call it FU because FU could be interpreted in multiple ways. I said that guy yeah, never thought of that. I didn't see that email. No. That was just, that was just the five maybe it was by on five Twitter. Network. Maybe it was a Twitter one or maybe they went to me just a personal. Yeah, people were suggesting alternatives as I'd mentioned that it had been morphing from just follow up into follow up plus news items. So follow up plus news is F U N, which stands for fun. People, <laughs> everyone likes fun, right? Everyone loves fun. Yeah, there was a couple other ones that were different puns on the letters F U with other letters tacked onto them. Right. Uh, I don't know if any of them will stick. We'll see. I'm we'll just going to go with what feels organic. Yeah, I still like F U. All right. So <laughs> the last uh, the last item here in as we tail off follow-up and turn into something else, is following up something that was discussed on another show. This was on Build and Analyze, where uh, Marco was talking about some of the programming topics uh, in our, in our two-episode run of programming. Right. I wouldn't have come back to programming so soon, but, you know, if it's going to be brought up on other shows, I have to respond. You have to have a response. That's, the, that's yes. your right. My hand has been forced, people who don't <laughs> like programming topics, topics, so don't blame me. All right. So... In that show, and I think it was in the second one, uh, well, actually, I'll say about what Marco said. Marco was, uh, he, he's programs in PHP for part of his job and for part of his past jobs. And I, in the episode, I said a lot of bad things about PHP, and he uh, uh, didn't like some of them and, and argued against them. Now, there's some, there's a kernel of truth to his, his, uh, his position. It's basically that I did a show where I talked a lot about a language that people say bad things about. So lots of people say bad things about Perl. And in that episode, I myself said bad things about PHP. And like Perl fans, PHP fans are kind of sick of everyone saying bad things about their language because it just happens all the time and we just don't want to hear it. We don't hear more people making dumb jokes about Perl or PHP. So in that, in that respect, Perl and PHP people are similar. Uh, but I would say that that sort of that situation where, where I'm... I'm defending a language that has a bad reputation and then piling on a language that has a bad reputation. That's about the limit, I think, of Marco's accurate assessment of what was said on our program. And, and I think he went a little bit off uh, onto what he might have imagined we said or what people always seem to say about PHP and Perl. Um, so one of the things I didn't say, or if I did say it, I definitely didn't mean to, was that uh, I've seen a lot of bad PHP code, therefore PHP is bad. I didn't even say that about Perl. That's an argument people say about uh, defenders of Perl will say, well, Perl's not bad. It's just that you've seen a lot of bad Perl code, but that doesn't make the language bad. I didn't even make that argument because I think that's, that's you know, conceding points that don't need to be conceded. Who, who cares what kind of language you've seen, what kind of code you've seen in the language? It doesn't change the nature of the language at all. It changes other things about the language, you know, but we're, saying, we're just looking at the language itself. Is the language worse because people make bad programs in it? Is C worse because of the obfuscated C contest? Is, you know... It can make you feel worse about people who program that language. It can change your expectations of when you look at code, what you think it's going to look like, but it doesn't change the language. So I certainly didn't say that in the program, and that's not the case for any language. If I'm discussing the merits of a language, I don't care what kind of code you've seen in that language. Well, one of the things I did bring up was like that, you know, it was the first time people had seen regular expressions, and that's why they think Perl's ugly, so on and so forth, but none of that changes the nature of the language. Uh, now Marco made a point uh, revolving around this that was like, uh, he said something like, the, the more people that use a language, the more likely you are to have seen bad code in it. I think that's close. I think maybe I'd modify it to say that the lower the barrier entry to a language, the more likely you are to have seen bad code in it. So basically, if non-programmers can pick up your language and write code with it, they're going to write bad code. Uh, 
and that, that happened to Pearl as well as PHP. Uh, Larry Wall, I think, has a saying about this, that, that writing baby Pearl is okay. If, you know, he's intentionally making a language that easy, that's easy to pick up. And if you're a non-programmer and you just want to, like, do baby talk in Pearl, where you know two or three little primitive things, you can get your work done. That's success as far as he's concerned as a language designer, because he's making a language that has that anybody can use. And you don't have to be an expert. You can use one tiny corner of the language that helps you get your job done and, you know, have fun doing it. And that's success. Um, that's very similar to saying the more people who use it, the more likely you'll see in bad code. But the reason more people use it is because it's open to more people. You don't need to be like a programming asp- expert like, you know, Haskell or whatever is a much higher barrier to entry. Whereas anybody can try like if you be your PHP or Perl and give it or JavaScript for that matter and give it a whirl. I mean, JavaScript has the same reputation, I think still does, where you see horrible, horrible JavaScript because it's so easy to pick up. They're like, oh, I just write a couple lines in a web browser. And you start out just like popping up an alert or, you know, these days maybe like making something appear or disappear with jQuery. And if that's all you ever learn, it's fine. You got your job done. You are now, quote unquote, programming with JavaScript. But it means there's a lot of bad JavaScript code around too. Um, and that kind of cargo culting where you just Google something and you copy and paste a block of PHP or JavaScript or Perl, it produces a lot of bad code. But again, it has nothing to do with the language. Um, but as for the language, I did say the language was bad. And I'd like to, <laughs> I didn't really elaborate on it, but I'd like to do so now since he asked. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, and it was interesting, by the way, that you didn't jump in to defend me. And, and his saying in these shows, I know you said it's not my place to defend, but you could have just, just said it, the accuracy of, you know, when he was saying that I said that PHP is bad because I'd seen bad code, I didn't say that. Don't you remember that I didn't say that? I'm not saying you have to make my argument for me, but it, I, I didn't. To be honest, I didn't remember then that you yeah, said exactly you that. Of, you have phrase. a lot of shows. I do it's a number of. of I don't just do the, these two shows, but that's still, right. you know, if I had remembered it, I, I promise you, I would have. I would have right. jumped uh, to your defense if uh-huh. if, if I had realized that that. You know, slight. You know, the the omission of the well, one the word is, or whatever. The reason he made that misrepresentation is just because, you know, like me, he's sick of people saying bad things about his language. And when he goes off on that tangent, what he starts on is the rant against most of the most common criticisms. And he's right that that, that is a very common criticism you hear yeah. brought up all the time. It's just bogus. Um, and I know that's bogus. And I hope I didn't say anything that would suggest that I thought it was valid. All right. So, what's bad about PHP? Well, let me start by saying I'm not a PHP expert. Mm. I've written enough PHP and anger to, to know about the language, I think, but I'm certainly not an expert in this. So if I make any technical flubs, I hope they don't detract from the overall point, my overall points about PHP. Uh, one of the things that points that Marco made was that uh, on, on the previous show, I had made a list of things that we had all kind of agreed upon as a programming community that are good uh, about languages. And he was saying, well, PHP has all those things. So he goes, you know, he's saying, well, John went through and made this list of stuff that's good about programming language. PHP ticks most of the boxes. And how can you say PHP is bad? You know, in the next sentence, you're throwing PSP, PHP under the bus. Well, a couple of points in that. First was that that was a list of things that everyone can, can agree on. That's not the comprehensive list of all things that, you know, by its nature, programmers have trouble agreeing on anything. What I was trying to say is the things that they've agreed upon are, you know, even given the wide diversity of opinion, there is some core set of things that no matter how much people agree, they can agree that these things are good. So it's kind of like the minimal overlap at the center of this big giant Venn diagram. So it's certainly not a comprehensive judgment of goodness, but it's just trying to say that there are a few things that everyone does agree upon. Uh, but, but a good language, a quote-unquote good language, has to have a lot more than just those things that I listed. And especially a good language has to excel in more subjective, subjective areas, areas that people can agree on. That's what makes something good is not just the, you know, the objective stuff that everyone agrees has got to be good. It's the subjective stuff. That's what makes it, it, language fun to use. 
I mean, it's pretty easy to imagine a language that takes all the boxes that I uh, had listed last time and the features that we all agree upon, but that's nevertheless completely awful. Like, mm. like it looks like Befunge or something. I don't know, do you know about Befunge? No. It's an intentionally uh, horrible language where like it, the source code is read in two dimensions where you go across a line, then down two lines, then to the left, then up. And you can look at the Wikipedia page for it if you want. Uh, but the point is that there's, there's a lot more to a language than just, you know, uh, checking off uh, checkboxes in, in that feature list. And really, what it comes down to is that the quality of a language is not just what the language does, but also how it does those things. That's what makes a language good or bad or fun or not fun. Um, and, and for the people who don't remember what the box is, I'll, I'll go through a couple of them now just so we can remember this uh, and say whether PHP gets them. So memory management, PHP, definitely yes. You're not dealing with pointers and stuff like that. Uh, native Unicode strings. Well, PHP has native strings, but they're really just byte strings. So maybe give them half a check mark here because they do have functions for dealing with Unicode, but it's not baked into the string for you. It's really just a bag of bytes. Uh, native regular expressions, pretty much, but there's not, not an integrated syntax, which is what I was trying to get at. They spend a lot of time smuggling regular expressions in strings and not having a, you know, a language syntax that specifically supports them. Native objects and classes, PHP has that nowadays. It was a long time in coming. And I would say that a lot of the native object and class stuff that, that PHP took, they took from like C++ and Java and maybe not the places I would have taken it from, but they still get a checkbox there, I think. Uh, name parameters, they kind of do the same thing Perl does there. It was like, well, not really, but there are constructs you can use to simulate name parameters that are close enough. They actually do better than Perl in that area, I think. Um, some acknowledgement of concurrency, not really on that one. Uh, configurable data structures, I didn't even get to this one on the list, but... Uh, Various kinds of strictures and stuff. I don't. I don't know how you describe this, but like, you know, how in JavaScript you can just start typing the name of a variable, and if you typoed it and you meant it to be the variable you were referring to five lines earlier, but you made a typo, JavaScript will just like, oh, it looks like you're making a new variable. Okay, I'll continue on my way. Right. Mm. Uh, I think Ruby does that too. A lot. Most languages do that, where it's like, we don't want you to have to declare things, which is good because no one likes doing those big long declarations. But on the other hand it's a really common mistake to put an extra character or, or transpose a character in a variable name later on, and it would be nice if the programming language could tell you that you did that. PHP sort of has a way you can do that, but but more at runtime, not really at compile time. Um, but then we're getting down to more esoteric features. All right, so ignoring those checkbox items, <laughs> let's think about the, 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 the things that make a language good or bad. Uh, here, here are some bad things about PHP. Uh, this is more of like an an overall bad thing. I'll try to give specific examples. So PHP copied a lot of its contemporaries, uh, mostly Perl. Like if you look at PHP syntax, it looks very similar to Perl syntax. It's got the, the dollar signs, the variables, the similar C style curly based functions with parentheses, some regular expressions, a little bit of C and C++ in there. Uh, but it doesn't seem like it learned the lessons of those languages uh, in terms of, you know, it, it was like, take a little from here, take a little from there. But the whole that got created isn't so much designed in any real sense. It, it, like, it doesn't look like there's like forethought put in. It's just like they pulled interesting features from a bunch of other languages and put it together. And the language looks like it's accreted, you know, like it's assembled from pieces that are piled on top of each other. But there's no like master plan for the thing. And the, the thing it reminds me most of is kind of like everyone who's been a programmer has done this. Usually when you're an early programmer, you start writing some program and you get really into it. And you just keep adding to it and adding to it. And, and you're excited about the program and you add features and you add code. And eventually you end up like writing yourself into a corner where you, you now you just have some big giant wad of spaghetti code. 
Mm. And, you know, you learn that lesson when you're a beginning programmer of like, you know, what can I do differently next time to make this not happen? Well, the PHP language is the language design equivalent to that, uh, or certainly seems like that anyway. So here are some examples. So data structures, basic data structures. Well, it's copied a lot of stuff from Perl in terms of we want to have, you know, native strings and we want to have native collection classes because those are super handy. Uh, they thought it would be clever to not have separate data structures for arrays and hashes, but we can combine that syntax. I don't know why they thought that was a good idea. I mean, JavaScript kind of does it too. Uh, but I would say that was a lesson they didn't learn from Perl, that, that doing that is not a great idea. And they have, now they have things like with the auto-created keys for arrays, where if you're making something that looks like an array, but it also looks kind of like a hash, it will create the indexes. You know, well, the last index was four, so the next index for this value has to be five, even though you didn't write a five there in your literal. Stuff like that is, is wiggy for basic data structures. That's, that was definitely a wart on the language. Uh, and in terms of the, the native data structures, they didn't do, the, there's no purity of purpose. They didn't do it like JavaScript or Ruby does where everything is an object. Well, the, Ruby's gone to extremes where, you know, constants are objects. You know, so they didn't take that path, which is fine. But they also didn't do the C, C++, Perl type with like a bunch of uh, built-in data structures, with, each of which has a literal syntax, like a C++ C++ kind of fall down this area. But Perl certainly has a literal syntax for all their different data structures. And instead... PHP has like, you know, well, call the array function to make yourself an array because we don't have a literal syntax for that. And, <laughs> right. and it's the same thing. You know, it's like this in-betweeny thing. Uh, now, modularization and namespaces. This is, this is a pretty big area where PHP didn't have anything for a long time. But in modern days, they, they have now they have more than they need. They have namespaces and what they call the scope resolution operator. Two different ways to try to hide code from other code and isolate things with kind of awkward syntaxes and they kind of look like they weren't created by the same person but now they're both in the same language uh, and, and this is all a fairly recent development in terms of uh, not just the cultural use of this thing but the, the existence of these features and not having this in both the culture and the language not having a good way of isolating code led to some bad stuff and I put in the show notes a link to the PHP reference manual showing the list of all PHP functions They're basically words that you can type in a PHP program right. without qualifying them without importing any modules these are just you know built into built the language in. yeah uh, and it, I don't know if you've looked at the show notes already but can you guess how many functions are on that list I have not looked at I didn't look at this list I saw the link in there uh, yeah I mean PHP has I don't know how many do you guess go ahead, take, take a guess yes 30 oh, come on 30 functions. This is like everything you can possibly type. Like, right. you know, uh, unqualified without loading a module built into the language. 32. 5,860. <laughs> you know, I was, I was thinking about my early days in PHP. And I spent a long, long, long time there. And I found that even after programming PHP, in some cases, eight hours a day, five, six days a week, for a long time, I mean, you, you know, a year, two years, because that's that was my language. That's what I used PHP that every day. Uh, that that, and I don't necessarily see this as a bad thing, but I I couldn't I couldn't get through more than an you know fifteen twenty minutes of writing without having to go look something up. Yeah, and auto completing IDE can help you here, but but, but this I I'm mean, talking about ten years ago. You didn't have yeah. it. But 5,800, like, it's a lot. That's, that's an order of magnitude bigger. I mean, let, let me just give you some examples. You sure it's not like 30 or 40? No, it's 5,860. Right. If you up. say so, I'm not, I'll, I'll trust yeah. you. So then you're like, all right, well, 
so they didn't have namespaces and they shoved everything in. Well, C doesn't really have good namespaces and didn't for a long time. So their APIs have similar. I mean, Objective C has prefixes and everything. So, you know, maybe it's not so bad. Well, you know, surely there's some sort of regularity to this stuff. Well, so if you look at that list, can you say, well, all right, it looks like, like words are always separated by underscores. Is that the case? No, not really. I mean, his example, image magic underscore set image virtual pixel method with no underscores between any of those words. But then you have, you know, PHP underscore strip underscore white space. Aha, well, so are, are the PHP methods always uh, prefixed with PHP underscore? No, you've got PHP underscore uname, but then you've got PHP info with no underscore, PHP version with no underscore. Well, so what about other prefixes? Do they always have underscores? No, Cairo sometimes has an underscore, sometimes doesn't. I'll leave it to you to try to remember what Cairo is when you think about what those functions do. Well, what about POSIX-type functions? They all have a POSIX prefix on them? No, POSIX underscore kill, but then you have chmod, chgroup with no POSIX prefix. Now... Obviously, there's going to be a lot of functions, especially if you're speaking of POSIX, especially if you're doing POSIX stuff. Like if you think of Perl, Perl exposes most C standard library POSIX functions, you know, usually with the same exact name. Although, you know, fopen becomes open, but you've got read, write, link, unlink. Uh, you know, if you do any Unix systems programming, you recognize all these names, you know, uh, uname, well, not uname, uh, utimes, uh, you know, select, socket, all sorts of C standard library things are exposed in Perl. So you would think Perl would have a lot of functions, too. Well, Perl has 218, and that's being pretty generous because it's counting stuff like operators for the minus operators and stuff. 218 compared to 5,860. It's just too many. And then you're going to say, well, so, so what? It's got a lot of functions. It doesn't have namespacing. It's got this big list of functions. That's how they did everything back in the day. You can kind of tell what they are, and you're not going to use all 5,000 of them. You're just going to use you know, the ones you normally use. You say, does this really make PHP a bad language? I'm going to say, yeah, this is exactly what makes language a bad language. It's not because you can't do something. It's not suddenly not Turing complete. You didn't uncheck some of those checkboxes and the features that I think it should have. This is what makes language design. It's, it's designing the language, and this is an undesigned language. This is one big honking namespace that they were adding crap to, and then nobody thought to put the brakes on adding stuff. They're just going to say, well, now it's really popular, and other things are more important, so we'll just keep adding names. And they kept adding them until there were 5,860 of them. That is insane. Mm-hmm. That is what makes a, a bad language. Uh, as more, the namespacing stuff they did add, they just kind of screwed up on the syntax. And again, you know, are you going to say it makes a bad syntax where you have the scope resolution and namespaces with a backslash, with a double colon for the other ones? You can get things like, you know, sub namespace backslash foo double colon static method, which is one of the examples from the documentation where you can combine backslashes and double colons because one is the namespace. And then within that namespace, this is the resolution operator. Stuff like that is just a big hairy mess. And again, it doesn't make the language less functional. It makes it a bad language. Uh, like function arguments, they, have, they love making functions for everything. That's why there's 5,000 of them. So you've got like func num args, func get args for variable argument. Thing. It's like a function, function for everything. They didn't want to add anything to the language. They just added new functions for stuff. Uh, you know, there's no special, one of the things in the documentation says no special syntax is required. You just call these functions. Well, special syntax, that's, that's why we use languages. You make a syntax for the things that are common for us to do. Don't just add another function with some crazy prefix on it so that we can do something. Design a language for me to use. Don't, <laughs> don't just add more functions. And don't brag about the fact that we don't have to learn some new syntax. It, that's, not, that's not a benefit. That's like, if we wanted that, we'd go to Lisp. Hey, no syntax to learn. Just parentheses <laughs> and words. And, you know. No, we don't want that. We yeah. want a language. And the language, the PHP language, it's just a big darn hairy mess. Uh, and the final point I bring up is that this is, this, you say, is this the language or not? Is that PHP is kind of stranded in the web templating context. And I know you can 
you know, there's ways of running PHP from the command line and stuff like that. And it's maybe that's not fair to say, oh, well, you can only do PHP on the web. But the, the fact is that people are not doing every kind of programming with PHP. It's not like a general purpose programming language from in usage. Is that the fault of PHP? Is there anything inherently about PHP that makes it not a general purpose programming language? No, but it's so much used in practice only on the web server that it makes it, you know, for example, if you're building a large system, uh, the way I like to do it, and most people usually like to do it, is they build some sort of core functionality library, and then they invoke that core functionality from the web for the web things, from, you know, in cron jobs, from the command line, you know, in all sorts of different contexts. Well, if you do your application and you write the core functionality in PHP, it's not as straightforward as, if, for example, you wrote it in Python or Perl or something like that, where you have command line utility that uses PHP or, you know, something, something outside of a web server context that's using your language. That's, that's what makes people think something is a general purpose programming language, that it works in all possible environments. Now, you might say that's like a strength of PHP. That, so here's a very specific language that's, you know, built on templating and it's made to be, you know, a templating language for the web. And that's, that's why it excels in that area. It doesn't have to be good at everything. But I would say if you're building a modern application, it's kind of a shame when a lot of you have to write a, logic, a lot of logic that is effectively stranded on the web server side because it doesn't occur to you or it's generally not uh, the, the common practice to make a general purpose library that's usable from all places and then share that code in every possible environment that you're going to be uh, executing that code. Um, so yeah, I'm going to say PHP is a bad language. It's bad in most of the ways that a language can be bad. And I, I'm going to say that Perl has lots of bad things about it too. And, and in most respects, Perl is not a great language either. But the main thing about PHP and Perl in particular, and this is the reason Perl and PHP people don't get along as well as they should, even though they should get along better because they're both crapped on by everybody else, is that there's just precious little that PHP does that Perl does not do better in terms of the language. In terms of practical things like, do you want to deploy an application? Do you want to execute on shared hosting? Do you want to be able to use common libraries and common applications? Sure, PHP has many advantages over Perl. But just the language itself, just like, I'm inventing a language, the web doesn't exist, here's my language, and here's what it looks like for control structures, loops, data structures, stuff like that. Almost nothing that, that PHP does does it do better than Perl, and Perl does tons of stuff better. Um, you know, Perl had modularization and namespace stuff down way before uh, PHP, and it's baked into the, well, let's not talk about the culture, but, you know, object orientation, uh, I think, is more orthogonal in Perl than PHP. Certainly the data structures are better, it's just, that's what drives Perl people nuts about PHP, is that you know, it's so much more popular because, again, programming languages do not become popular based on the quality of the language. They become popular based on other things. And if you're the type of person who thinks that's unfair, you're going to say, you know, why, why is PHP so popular when Perl is a better language? Well, it doesn't matter that Perl is a better language because so many other things are so much more important, and that's why everybody uses PHP. But if we're going to scale it all the way back and say, let's just look at the languages, you have to come down and say that Perl, PHP is so similar to Perl, but it's like Perl done badly. In terms of the language only, again, I don't want people writing in and saying I would never use Perl for X, I would always use PHP. In terms of the language only, PHP is like really, really badly done Perl. It's just a big hairy mess, and it's, it's hard for me to think of a language that is of worse quality that is as commonly used. Maybe AppleScript. I don't know how commonly used AppleScript is. I don't think it, uh, AppleScript is even slightly relevant anymore. I don't know, but it's a big mess of life. You know, I mean, and this is this is the perfect opportunity for me to jump in and and in some way defend PHP, but uh, 
I don't like language. I can defend yeah. PHP like the practical, you know, no, as a language, as a language, or or at least discuss oh, with oh, you. The, I'm open to someone who knows. More no, I'm not. PHP I'm not going to because I agree with you completely. This is one of those situations where I think you're right on the money. I don't. I the thing is for me, I'm so disinterested in PHP. I I have it has no place in my world anymore, other than something that you would want to switch away from if possible. There, there's zero cause for me to look at PHP in 2011 and consider it as any. I mean, I would say the same thing uh, about Perl, except I could actually, and I still do occasionally, do things with, with Perl if I need to write a very, very quick little script. And it, it seems easier to do in Perl than Ruby. And I know that I won't ever need it again because it's you can't read it later. You know, we've been through that. Then, you know, Perl to me has a use as a system administrator. Uh, it has a use. There's certainly not uh, to to write code in every day as part of my job. That's uh, that's one of the blessings of Perl's not being, you know, Perl was popularized by the popularization of the web and then fell out of favor for the web for various reasons. But the f- the fact that you can use Perl outside of the web environment has given it more longevity because really what Perl was invented for and what still was I not the web. One of the most usual things is. To replace all these Unix utilities that, that you have 17 different versions on different OSs like, you know, well, how does the grep work on this system? And how does the PS or the SED work on this system? And how does awk work here? You don't have to remember, like, what well, does this support that flag or whatever. Perl was saying, let's take all those little utilities and combine them up into a single language that will be the same on every machine. Which sounds silly for people who never use SED or awk or grep and don't understand what the advantages are, or shell programming for that matter and worrying about what version of the shell you're using and stuff like that. You know, they don't care about that. For the people who did care about this in the pre-internet days, Perl was a godsend because it was finally like a unification of all that. And on top of that, it was also a unification of all those little utilities plus basically the entire Unix C API. Mm -hmm. That's why I was saying all those functions that are there before. So if you know Unix systems programming, but you don't like dealing with all the pointers and everything, here is this language, Perl, that does everything all those little command line utilities do, but in a uniform way with error checking and all this stuff that you can do in a real programming language. And it exposes the entire Unix API which, again, they have funny names, and there's a lot of them, 218 functions, and, you know, uh, you have to know what all these names are. You're like, how do I delete a file? Why is there not a file underscore delete function? Well, you've got to know that it's on link, but if you're a Unix systems programmer, you know that it's on link already, and then Perl is as easy a learning curve for you, right? So that role of Perl as basically the guts of Unix exposed in a way that's not annoying and in a uniform fashion across lots of different operating systems, the utility of that will never go away, really, uh, until the utility of Unix goes away, probably. So even as you, as Perl falls in and out of favor for various applications, using it in those contexts is still incredibly useful. Uh, and PHP, I think, will have the same lifetime in terms of, like, as long as the web is relevant, the advantages of PHP, where you just write a file, shove it up there, and it executes, uh, and the language looks vaguely like Perl and is reasonably okay to use, uh, that will still continue to be popular because you can, you know, all these all these products that are based on PHP, like these bulletin boards and stuff like that, you know, the little self-installers where they'll just jam some files onto the, you know, the document root of your web server somehow. You know, you can say what you want about the security of these things and the quality of the code and stuff like that. But, but as long as convenience wins out all over all of those things, PHP will live on as sort of like the, you know, the way you can write executable code on a web server with the least amount of plumbing and stuff to know about. Um, I, I still curse it when I have to edit those types of products and try to make them do different things, but... Uh, that's not a fault of the language. Uh, and in fact, I would say the existence of all those programs shows the value of the language. I just, you know, 2011, I'm I'm not looking at PHP anymore. Yeah, well, it's looking at you. 
It's everywhere. You cannot you cannot escape it. Yeah, and it will never go away. Yeah. I mean, I really I really just don't think but it will ever server go. Server-side JavaScript has a fighting chance of getting rid of it. It's sort of like if the JavaScript the, no, the Node.js stuff. Yeah, that would be great, coming. wouldn't it? If Node.js really yeah. really made PHP go away. I'm not a great fan of, of JavaScript either, but JavaScript it's, the language. At least it's a language. Has a much better design than PHP. Much better. No, it's if you haven't looked at if you haven't looked at Node.js and the stuff that, where JavaScript is in 2011, it's they should really rename it. I mean, we could do a whole show on on how why JavaScript was so poor, you know, how it's so poorly named. Uh, it it should not have the word Java in it, among other things. Yeah, that, that's not its weakness anymore, though. People no, but but that's the thing. You need to if you haven't checked out JavaScript or Node.js in a while, you got to check this out. What they're doing there is is amazing, and that's what I mean. If if I'm looking at something to to write a new application in in 2011. The, at the bottom of my list, PHP is in the very, very bottom of my list. It's just above Perl. Uh, I think I think PH, uh, JavaScript is pretty crappy too, though. I just think that the popularity of JavaScript shows how desperate we all are for languages that we're willing to accept something as crappy as JavaScript because it has so many other. It's like this is our only chance, man. Every, everything else is stuck in some ghetto where we can't get it out. But JavaScript is on every single browser, and if we could bring it to the server side too, then we could have a uniform language on client and server side. And yeah, the language sucks, but it's our only chance. Everything else is not viable, but so we're willing to accept JavaScript so or speak. not accept it and just run coffee, use CoffeeScript or anything else. But we, we did a show about that. Yeah, we did. We talked about that. Right. Well, speaking of desperate, I I was desperate to stop using uh, QuickBooks. For my invoicing stuff. So I switched to FreshBooks.com. I really did this. Now, people would think that this is, of course, they're paying me to say it. It didn't work like that. I found FreshBooks and then said, this is so great. You guys have to sponsor and then convince them. And they've been been happy because people like you go to FreshBooks.com and sign up because they give you birthday cakes. But I'll get to that in a second. We'd like to thank FreshBooks for sponsoring the episode. I used to do traditional invoices. I used to do them in Word or Pages or... Uh, QuickBooks, and it, it was a mess. And what I love about FreshBooks is now all of my invoices are in one place. I can see a list of the invoices. I can see exactly how much uh, people owe me, who's paid, uh, how much things are. It, it, it's incredibly easy to integrate this in your workflow so that you can create the, a new company, you can create an invoice for them and send it. It happens all in email. The people get it. They can look at it on the web. They can see a PDF of it. When they view it, you know that they viewed it. So now you know that your client has seen the invoice. They can't play games with you anymore. You know that they've seen it. And then when they send you their payment, you can just check a little box and hit submit. Marked as paid. They get an email that says you got it and it's paid. It eliminates all these extra emails, all these extra question marks from you and the clients that are trying to pay you. They've got PayPal integration. They've got uh, Google payment integration. Is it, if you have your own merchant account, they can hook up with that too. They can even have it so that when you add a new client, it'll automatically be added to your MailChimp newsletter. There's integration with tons of other services. So you go, go to freshbooks.com and when you sign up, uh, they'll ask you how you, heard about the sh- how, you, how you heard about it. You tell them about this show, Hypercritical. And one person a week who, who puts down Hypercritical, one person a week will win a birthday cake. They will send you a bir- it doesn't have to be your birthday, but you could pretend. So check them out at freshbooks.com. Were you coughing and clearing your throat while we were doing that? You have no idea. <laughs> Some things you don't want to know. I heard and I, and I, I plugged and unplugged the microphone. Oh, wow. You're really on your top of your game today. 
All right, so here here are your choices for what would normally be the main topic, but I have three little things. Okay, I don't know what we have for it. we've got we're only an hour into the show. Yeah. We've got uh, some of my longstanding complaints about Twitter. That's probably not too long. I've got my toaster topic, which has been stewing for a long time, and I think oh. I could get through that today if we wanted. And I have some uh, complaints about uh, iTunes syncing. That's a really short one, but an annoying one. And uh, the SSD stuff. I I would like to do SSD. Uh, and or the iTunes syncing because I have a feeling iTunes. I'm not jazzed about iTunes syncing, but I would like to hear because people actually asked us to address the SSD stuff on Twitter, and I think we even got a few emails about it too. So I feel like it's it's only the right. It's it would have to be right to All do right. that. But we'll there's a, there's SSDs. a question before that. I have a question for you. Yes, something I want to ask you. There's also an article that came out. I've not added this to the show notes. I talked about it on a couple of other shows. I can put it in if you think it's worth putting in. And, and that is there was an announcement from MacSales.com, one, uh, Otherworld Computing is the name of them, uh, that the new iMacs that have just come out have created, and, and I mentioned this because it's related to the SSD thing. A lot of people want to put SSDs not just in their laptops, but in their, their desktop machines too. Why not? And... There was a there is a uh, an issue where in the I guess an earlier version of the iMac, the previous generation, uh, there could be a problem where if you installed a drive, an upgraded drive, hard drive, regular drive, not an SSD, just any old drive, that because of the way that the iMac sensed heat from the drive, instead of having sensors that were external to the drive, it actually used the drive's internal heat sensors, that all of the fans around the drive and potentially all of them in the whole machine would spin at full speed. And that's pretty noisy. And so you go from having a machine that's essentially silent to a machine that is suddenly quite noisy just because you swapped out a drive. Well, apparently they've they've even further integrated the uh, heat sensor checking in the newer version of the iMacs, the brand new ones that were just announced, so that not only if you swap the drive, but if you if you even move that drive and put it in another bay, in other words, if you don't have that Apple drive with Apple's drive firmware in it, telling the iMac that it's cool, literally, uh, that the fans will spin up and you have all kinds of problems. So they're saying that you can't even you can't even swap it, for, let alone forget an SSD. You can't even touch that drive, come pull it out of the main bay. And what that also means is that let's say that drive goes bad, which as you, you love to point out, drives go bad frequently, relatively speaking to the rest of the computer, that you can't go to the store and buy your own drive and slam it in there. You probably have to go to Apple to get a new drive put in. What do you think about that? Care to comment? Yeah, so I, I read that story too. Uh, in cases like this, it's I'm always left to wonder... Depending on what your attitude is, like if you're if you're like a do-it-yourself kind of kind of guy and you like to you know get into your Macs and stuff like that, it's your inclination to think that Apple is doing this to be evil. Um, but if you don't care about these things, or or you know you're coming from a different perspective, you say, well, Apple's not being evil; they're just being dumb. Uh, none of these none of these things are flattering to Apple. I guess there's a third perspective that says you're not supposed to be opening up your iMac. But not, really, there's there's no way for Apple to come out of it looking clean. But it, the issue is. What I try to think of is like, why is Apple doing this? What what is Apple's right. actual, actual motivation? Right. So, I don't think they're doing it to be mean, just because it's being mean to such a small portion of people and in such a weird way that you know we're losing tons of money because people are swapping their MyMac hard drives with better ones with by 
putting suction cups on the screen and opening up their really comp- no no one is doing that seriously they're not worried it's not like you know we have to do this to be mean it's not like a drm thing it's not a we have to control everything thing right the theory i heard floated was that internal sensors are more efficient in terms of you don't need to put an external sensor in the box you don't need an extra wire and stuff like yeah, that less less stuff you know less stuff in there fewer things to fail fewer parts Maybe that's penny pinching. You know, maybe uh, the, the thing I can think of is more plausible is that perhaps they were having situations where hard drives on iMacs were overheating, and that was like when they looked at like what are our percentage of iMac repairs to the previous generation, we're getting a lot of issues where the you know things are overheating that shouldn't be, and we think it's because the sensor isn't correctly sensing the temperature of the hard drive. And you know, maybe that's 0.02 percent, and they think it should be 0.018 percent, right? So they say, well, well, the next model, let's not use external sensors. We can we can use uh you know an internal sensor and we just work with our drive vendor for him to give us a drive that has a sensor that will give us a better reading than this external thing that we're using like it won't be subject to whatever problems these external sensors were having so they go with a hard drive with with an internal sensor in it and I bet my my guess is that no one who's involved in this decision thinks but oh what about those those people who want to swap their hard drives now they're going to be screwed you know they're thinking first of all. For a, through a close approximation, zero people do that, right? So I don't really care about that at all. And second, they're thinking, well, you know, as long as we make it so it's still safe, so that they put in their drive that doesn't have the internal temperature sensing, well, the fans will crank up all the way, so it's fail safe. You know, it won't, it won't destroy their computer. If they really want to mess with it, then they'll be fine. And uh, their mistake is probably underestimating how annoyed people are by this change. Because even though it's a small number of people and, and you know, it's not like an issue for, for the broader company, it's... It's an act of, uh, it's a disrespect to that community. And, you know, and that community is vocal and this story goes around the web. And even though they're small, like people don't want to know, well, just because I'm not, you know, 80% of your market, you don't respect me at all. It's like, why, why prevent me from doing the things that I enjoy doing for seemingly no real important reason? Like, it seems like you could have just fixed your external sensor or you could have worked with the industry to come up with a standard for internal sensing and then I would just have to buy one of those drives that has internal sensing or stuff like that. Mm. But Apple doesn't want to go down that. Like, so it's kind of, you know, people talking across purposes where Apple probably thought this, this new iMac is going to be great. We're going to have fewer repairs on, on, you know, bad hard drives and we have a little bit cheaper parts and, you know, my job is to work on the reliability and I've done my job well. And then, you know, they say, well, why am I getting all this bad press? These people seem really angry. They want to replace the hard drives. I don't see, you know, neither group seems to see where the other group is coming from. And the situation is just where they're both kind of grumpy at each other. Mm. Uh, now, SSDs, which is the issue we'll get to in a little bit, is kind of related to this in that a lot of this goes away with SSDs because they're much lower temperature than a thing with, you know, 72, you know, 100 RPM spinning thing on bearings inside there sucking up power and, and getting hot and stuff like that. So this we're kind of in a transitional phase here where over the next, you know, five, ten years, spinning rust, as it's affectionately known, will slowly disappear from our computers of all kinds. And that will certainly make the IMAX design a lot easier where the fewer hot things you have to jam in there behind that already hot, you know, display, the better. I, I'm kind of disappointed that this is this is tough to swap, but if they're going to make something tough to swap, this is the machine to do it on. Because this is perhaps the least likely uh, machine to have its hard drive swapped. I would say even even a Mac Mini is more likely to have to have its guts ripped open because people are buying that tend to be like hobbyists or whatever. This is the computer people buy when they just want to. I don't want to think about it. I want the whole computer. It, it doesn't, you know, it comes in one box. It has everything I need, and boom, there it is. No external speakers, no external camera, no big box under the desk. It's just the computer. 
they're not going to open this thing up. You know, it is the least opened, I would imagine, computer that Apple sells. And it's not easy to open. And it really shouldn't be opened because correctly opening it and putting it back together is harder than it is on almost any computer except maybe, you know, the aluminum uh, power books from way back when. Uh, so I'm kind of disappointed that it happened, but I don't think it's the end of the world. And I hope Apple does at least reconsider so that for the next version of the iMac, they either have worked with vendors and have a line of hard drives that are compatible with this thing they're doing, or they go back to an external sensor, or they just go SSD for everything. Um, any of those solutions would be better than this situation. But I, I would not hesitate to buy one of these iMacs simply because if I bought one, I would never plan to open that thing up. You know, like I think Marco pointed out on Twitter or someone else did that when you pull that screen off with the suction cups and everything, you got to put it back on without getting a dust trapped underneath it and stuff. That's a situation you do not want to be in. You know, you don't want to be pulling open this this beautiful thing. It's like assembled like a watch, you know, with every part exactly fitting in its spot. And then you have to, you know, take it apart mess with the insides and put it back together so that all the sensors are lined up and all the thermal paste is in the right spot and mm. you didn't crimp any wires and you don't have dust under the screen, you do not want to no. deal with that at all. No. So, uh, so yeah, I, I think the story will, will go away eventually. Uh, it's just an, an unfortunate situation, but I don't think there's malice on anybody's part. And I hope everybody works it out for the next time. And I think, do think these new iMacs really are great. Uh, it's interesting that they're doing uh, the, the incremental spread of, of Thunderbolt you know? Yeah, this one's got like, two. Right. So the first one had one. This one has two. Like, they're really taking it cautious, you know? They're not doing, okay, you know, seven Thunderbolt ports plus, you know, one Firewire and two USB. Now, that if you look at the back of the new IMAX, it's still a ton of USB, one Firewire, one Ethernet, and then two Thunderbolts. So it, it'll be fun to watch those Thunderbolt ports slowly eat Pac-Man-like all the other ports. I think it'll take a long, long time, especially for the USB to go away. Uh, but I hope it really does advance down the line and start eating up some of the other ports yeah i mean maybe it's eating up all it can already because you, you don't want to take off the firewire port because then you make everyone have to buy an adapter you don't want to mm-hmm. take off the ethernet port because everyone has to buy an adapter well i mean they they always could and apple used to do this kind of thing a lot more than they currently do but i remember the time when if you bought uh and i i'll even say powerbook not macbook but powerbook that it would come with a, a multitude of adapters at least one, if not two or three, in some cases, they would give you the one to convert to VGA. At the time, they might give you a, a, a DVI one. They might give you an S video one. I mean, they they would give you a bunch of things. And and now they typically don't give you quite so much. But it, it so I'm saying it would be uncharacteristic of Apple to include an adapter, especially because these adapters look like they're going to be expensive. Like they're not going to be a you know, an $8 adapter, they're going to be a $39 adapter probably. So I, I find it unlikely that they would include them, but I don't know. Would you complain if, if your next Mac had five Thunderbolt ports and, you know, one that converted it into USB and another one that converted it into a Firewire 800? I mean, would you complain about that? Would I would, because personally, I love having the convenience of the Firewire 800 port right there and the, and the USB ports right there. I don't, I don't want yet another adapter to think about and bring along and, I think that's the thing. I just, I don't think we're ever going to see USB ports go away. Well, we might see Firewire go away because that supposedly is going to be very easy to adapt to, to Thunderbolt. And there are not a ton of people using Firewire out there, really. They do for drives. I do. I mean, my mixer's plugged into it. It's plugged in right now with Firewire. Uh, so it's very important to me. But I think there are plenty of people who are like, ah, Firewire, I haven't used that in years. But USB, that's not going away. But how would you, do you think they would ever do that and just switch it out and say, oh, we know this is sudden, but we told you it was coming. 
I feel kind of like I did when Honda uh, decontented its cars. Decontenting is the code word that the auto industry was using for, uh, I think they were doing it because the exchange rate between the U.S. dollar and Japan was becoming unfavorable. I don't remember what the economic conditions uh, that were requiring Honda to do this, but it was around like the, the mid-1990s, early to mid-1990s. Uh, Honda had been selling cars in the U.S. that had features that competing cars in the same price range did not have. Uh, and then because of whatever the economic conditions are, Honda had to scale back the cost of making its cars to be able to compete in the same price points. Right. So the, the example I, I would give is that I had a 1992 Honda Civic, a, a car that I loved, and the, the trunk lid. Honda uh, Civic or Civic Wagon? Civ- was there a Civic Wagon? There was. There was a hatchback. Yeah, there was no a way. hatchback. There was also a wagon. I know because Civic I had... Civic Wagon in 1992? I'm I don't know if they out. still made them in 92, but I had I had one uh the, up until 19, well, I don't know if they were making them anymore, but I had it in 91. Uh, in 92, they did not make a wagon. Okay, but, that's too bad. Yeah, so they made the hatchback. But anyway, no, I had the, had the four-door sedan. Um, and, you know, it's a small car, right? It's, a, it's, it's not a, it's in the small car class, compact car. Would you drive uh, that today? Would I drive it today? If I had a mint condition 1992 Honda Civic, the only thing preventing me from driving it all the time would be that it's a death trap compared to current safety that's, standards. That's what I'm at. That's what I'm talking about right there. Yeah. But uh, no, I wouldn't want to have kids in that car or myself for that matter. But it was fun to drive. But but anyway, so the trunk on these cars is very small because it's a small car, uh, and you want to maximize the space that's in that trunk. So what you don't want to have are those kind of uh, they call them gooseneck uh, trunk lid hinges where they intrude into the trunk area when you close the lid. I don't know if anyone's ever packed suitcases into the back of a car, but you know you have these hinges. If you pack the suitcases in, you're like, great. And then you try to close the lid and the hinges bang down against the suitcases you just put in. Those are intruding gooseneck trunk lid uh, hinges. Well, what the Honda trunk had in the 1992 Civic was a series of, I think they were pneumatic struts. I don't think they were hydraulic. A series of pneumatic struts that held open the trunk you know, it kept it in a propped up position so it wouldn't fall on your hand or your, or your head when you're loading it, but didn't intrude at all into the trunk. So when you close it, these little pistons would, would close on themselves and they would all lay down flat in sort of the, the surrounding area and none of them would intrude on the trunk base. So you could stuff that trunk with as much stuff as you can fit in it. And if, you know, as long as nothing was poking out of it, you could close that lid on the thing. Um, and now this costs a lot more money to make these struts and make yeah. sure they align correctly and they're delicate and they're made with little metal spindly things and they have 20 different anchor points and hinges and there's several of them than just taking what's essentially a bent piece of steel, that gooseneck thing, and welding it in two spots and welding it to a hinge inside and welding it to the top of the trunk lid. Uh, so in the generation of Honda Civic after that, they said, well, we got to cut, mo- cut corners somewhere. We can't keep making our cars for the amount of money it costs to make them uh, because we won't be competitive on price. We, would have to, we will cut into our profit margins. So they looked at every part of the car where they were making something in a more expensive manner than they really needed to, and they said, okay, well, the trunk lids, well, those cost, you know, 30 bucks to make. I'm just pulling numbers out of the air. We can use those goosenecks things for 10 bucks. so there's 20 bucks right there, so let's do that. And they did that all over the entire car. Uh, you know, you got to do what you got to do in terms to, to remain competitive, but if you are a Honda fan and a Honda owner, when you went in to get your next Honda, you said, let's see what the new Civics look like. You're like, what the hell is this? I'm used to, you know, everything being nice, slightly nicer to normal. Now, this is Apple-related because Apple did exactly the same things, although I would say for very different reasons, with the iPod line. When you bought the first iPod, the 5 gig, you know, 1,000 songs in your pocket mm-hmm. iPod, it came with a box full of goodies. Like yeah, it had the little, it had the dock, little pouch, it had adapters, the dock, the app, pouch, everything. a screen cleaner, a charging cable. Like, it came with just 
tons of accessories. And, and what, weren't they all FireWire at that point, too? Oh, yeah. It was all FireWire. And they came, you know, like, forget about, like, printers not including a cable. This thing came with, like, you know, a playset, basically. <laughs> they came with the iPod. Here's your iPod. It came with the remote that, was, that goes into, you know, the, 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 to control the thing with the headphones. It came with everything you could possibly imagine. And that over time, as the iPod became popular, Apple said, you know what? People will still buy iPods if we don't include this extra stuff. And in fact, if we don't include the little remote control for the headphones or the dock or whatever, we can sell, we can sell that dock for 30 bucks. That dock, which is a lump of plastic with a piece of metal in it and a wire sticking out of it, we can sell that for 30 bucks and it costs us three cents to make. So let's not include that in the box for free. Let's sell it for 30 bucks. And they did that with everything. They took everything out of that box. They basically decontented the, the, uh, the iPod line. The same thing has happened with their laptops and the adapters where they would say, oh, well, you know, we're taking away this port, but let's, let's include an adapter for the old port. Or we're changing the, the video port on their new line of portables. Let's include adapters to make sure the people who had monitors that connected to the old ones can connect to the new ones. Like, now they don't really feel that compunction to do that. They're like, maybe if there's no Ethernet port at all, we'll include an Ethernet USB adapter. But, you know, we could just make charge 12 bucks for that or, you know, 30 bucks more likely. Uh, and why would we give it to them for free? Because most people won't need it anyway, so we'll just sell them the extra adapter. Like, I, they bet their rationalization is we're being a la carte. Like, if you don't need all these adapters, don't buy them. You know, and it'll make it so you're not cluttering up your new computer with all these little gigaws that you don't really need to do anything with. And if you need it, just buy it. But really, it feels like you're being nickeled and dimed. You're used to getting all this stuff in the box and not having to worry about it. And now every single little thing you need to add onto any Apple product, it's a $30 trip to the Apple store if you're lucky. And if you're right. not lucky, it's like 50 bucks. Like yeah. the example I hate is uh, my old iPod Touch when I wanted to show the video on a television through like a component video cable. It was like 50 bucks to get that cable from Apple. $50. I don't know what planet, a, a, you know, a passive, no active components, nothing, no electronics whatsoever. Cable costs $50. like monster cable land. Yeah, it wasn't right. even a good quality cable. It was a Chinese piece of crap, you know, component video cable with spindly little wires. It's not like they were made out of, you know, gold from the Himalayas <laughs> by monks with, you know, <sighs> drives me nuts. And then I bought, so I bought a third party cable with 30 bucks. And then of course it stopped working with the next generation of iPod because Apple keeps screwing with the resistor values. And anyway, yeah, so that, that's how I, I feel about this the whole issue of, of adapters is that it's nicer when they're including them and I feel nickel and dimed when they're not included. Uh, so if, if Apple's thing is going to be they're going to migrate the port slowly and they're going to make us buy adapters, that feels kind of crappy. But I, I guess they just think they can get away with it and it probably does help their bottom line significantly. SSDs. SSDs. Yeah, this is, I don't think this is a big thing, although the story was from uh, last week. So this was the, the one that's in the show notes is this link to uh, Jeff Atwood's uh, blog where he talks about his experiences with SSDs. He has been a big SSD fan for a long time. He sort of got religion about them when he first installed one in his machine. And you, you probably know a lot of people like this who, you know, they install their first SSD and then they can't shut up about it. It's like, oh, my God, it's like getting a brand new computer. Yeah, phrase, whole new computer, whole new computer. If you don't have an SSD, you have to get one. And in a lot of respects, that's true because the hard drive is, you know, most of, your, most of the time your computer spends is just waiting on I.O. Yeah. Uh, and, and the CPU is just sitting there twiddling its thumb going, yeah, all right, all right, when is this, the hard drive? Oh, here's a block of data from the hard drive. Let me just spin for another three million cycles waiting for the, you know. So, so really, when you can, uh, you know, take the bottleneck in your machine and make it faster, it does make a dramatic difference. And uh, yes, I all wish we could have SSDs in our machines because they would be faster, but they're still super expensive. But so the downside of SSDs, aside from the crazy price, which, you know, cautious people like me are still just waiting and waiting for the price to go down, is that what he's found in his experience buying SSDs for himself and buying SSDs for all the employees of his company and all of his developers is that they're failing at a rate that he 
that he thinks is much higher than regular hard drives. Uh, he doesn't really do a comparison with regular hard drives, but he does give an average lifetime for all the different SSDs. And he's buying all across all sorts of brands, all sorts of types, the SLC and, and, and MLC, if I'm telling those acronyms right, in terms of how many bits they store per cell. You know, there's more, basically, it's more expensive to only store one bit per cell, and, uh, but it's supposedly more reliable. So he, he's buying all sorts of these, all brands, all kinds, all capacities, and uh, you know, seeing how long they last. And someone in the comments uh, did an average of, maybe it was his stats or someone's stats that he referenced, uh, no, I wouldn't say this is statistically significant, but the fact that it's basically a random sampling that, you know, these 10 or 20 or 30 different drives, I think it gives a reasonable view of what they like. And the average life of, of SSD before it just goes belly up and is not usable anymore was 227 days. Right. And that does not seem like a long time. Yeah. I mean, if mo- what I tell my family and what I tell myself is when I buy a hard drive is that this mechanical hard drive. Don't assume it's going to last you any longer than three years. If it does, great, you're lucky. But assume that when the warranty runs out, it's going to be time for a new drive. Right, and then there's also the comment, I believe, I'm not sure if we mentioned it, but it's certainly mentioned on, on in many, many other places, and that is, and Dave Nanian is quick to point this out, uh, that, that when one of these drives fails, it doesn't fail the way that a uh, traditional hard drive will fail, which is it, it, it may it may fail catastrophically but it may also sort of start to have problems and then limp along and you can still get data off of it and in in many cases when these drives fail it's it's a complete catastrophic utter failure and there's no recovery whatsoever did we talk about that i feel like we did uh, you know, we mentioned it like the whole idea is that technologically speaking they should fail in a mode where all your data is just perfectly safe and it's on the you know like the cells of they just can't be written anymore right but they should still be able to read but in practice what seems to happen perhaps because the problems happen in the controller chips or something else for whatever the reason practically speaking when they go bad your your machine just doesn't recognize the disk anymore and says this disk is no good uh and so even if theoretically all your data is still on those flash chips in there if you can't get it without sending your drive to drive savers or something like that it's not really useful to you uh but but yeah 200 227 days it's less than a year and if someone bought a new fancy new ssd and then the year didn't you know they couldn't it couldn't last them the year they would be probably sad about the purchase especially since it costs a lot of money now, Jeff Atwood, being the uh, soon-to-be multi-billionaire l- ruler of the internet, who we all must <laughs> bound to, uh, says, "I don't care. I love SSDs so much. I'm going to, you know, just buy. I'll just keep buying myself a new one. If they die, I'll buy a new one." Because he can't even fathom using a machine. Right. He, he, that's what he's saying. He's saying, you know, you have good backups. That's fine. That's the cost of doing business in 2011. If you right, want, you right. know, he's not, I, he's not. He's no longer going to use spinning rust like an animal. <laughs> right. He's All not, mixed together, living like pigs. Yes. Yeah. And so I would say that yes, if someone wants to buy me a new SSD every time my SSD breaks, I will gladly use only SSDs and just back them up very well. Uh, but until that happens, some, someone in the comments in this article also did the math on like. What is the price premium that you're paying? Assuming your SSD is going to die in about a year. So, you know, assuming you use the recommended SSD, which is a fraction of the size of, of a, of a uh, average hard drive, but their recommended SSD was like 500 bucks, and it lasts you, you know, uh, 227 days on average. So the SSD tax that they calculated is that you're paying $2.31 a day for the privilege of using an SSD. It comes out at like $843 a year. Right over what you would have been paying if you just bought a regular hard drive. And if mm-hmm. you can afford the SSD tax and you don't mind, everyone, I would say even no matter how good your backups are, 
it still sucks that if you're using a computer and all of a sudden the hard drive dies and the next time you come and wake up from sleep, the hard drive is dead. No matter how good your backups are, you still need to do that restore and it's annoying. And what if the thing you just did two minutes ago didn't get saved? Like we're not saving every three milliseconds. You know, you, you're probably going to lose some work. So maybe if, you, if they're going to fail in less than a year, maybe you swap them out every six months preventatively if you've got money coming out of your ears. I don't know. Uh, but, but all this leads me to the same conclusion I had in the previous shows that I'm still wary of SSDs. They obviously have uses where you just got to go with, like in the MacBook Air, that's made for, for an SSD. You do right. not want a spinning hard drive in that thing because it would be super dinky and it's hot and, you know, it's just uses power. You know, I, well, I, have, I, have, a qu- I have a question for you then right here, du- a direct question for you. Yeah. Okay. I, we did, did we discuss the new, my new machine that I got since the last, I believe we did on the last episode, right? So something that they sell, and we're talking about, uh, I think it's, yeah, it is Otherworld Computers, MacSales.com. They have, uh, a, they sell a little kit, and you can replace the optical bank and replace the super drive in your PowerBook, PowerBook, MacBook, whatever the kit's called today. It's a MacBook Pro. I think they're for regular MacBooks too. You can replace the entire optical bay. You remove it. And they have a, a, a little kit that's designed to house one of their SSD drives. Now, for, I'll repeat this again because it's worth mentioning is that for some reason, people act, they, they seem to get the impression that I've never used an SSD drive or like, I, wow, I, I don't know anything. I have one. I had one in my, uh, my other MacBook and, and uh, I took it out and I have it right here and I could very easily install it into this new one. It's the, uh, I think it's, you know, 128 gig. Uh, other world computing drive it's the one that uh, everybody really likes and gives really good reviews to and it, it is fast and i've been thinking maybe maybe it's time to get that thing and what's nice is for you know for another 20 bucks or something like that 17 bucks they have a little usb i guess you would call it a drive chassis although it's very small that will house the um, optical drive that you've removed from your uh, MacBook Pro. And it, it's perfect size for it. And that way you can use it over, S- over USB if you should want it. So it doesn't go to waste. It's still there. If you think you're going to need it, throw it in your laptop bag and you're good to go. And I'm, I'm wondering, it's 75 bucks for the, uh, for the bay. The installation is not intimidating at all. And I'm wondering, you know, should I, should I do that? And then if I do do it, here's the other question. What would you put on there? You would think, well, you would want to put the operating system and all of the applications. But do you think that things would get slowed down? The fact that I would also be using, uh, I I mean, you would think that you would want all of your data storage, uh, all of your, you know, traditional storage. Wouldn't you think that you would want to keep that on since that drive, 128 gig drive, is significantly too small if you have a big music or photo library or even just your, your home stuff, wouldn't you put that on the traditional drive? You know, the thing that's, that's keeping me away from these various scenarios involving multiple drives and SSDs is Mac OS X's depressing continued inability to have a... Or it's lack of a intelligent storage layer. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you would want, I mean... If we had to just describe the ideal situation, what you want is, look, I want to install these two things. I can get lots of storage cheaply on a spinning disk, and I can get lots of fast storage or you know, less fast storage on an SSD. So I want to stick both these things into my computer because I feel like you know, it's economically feasible, 
And what I want to happen is to the com- for the computer to put the things that I frequently use on the SSD and the things that I less frequently use on the other drive. And I don't want things to be spread across both of them. I, I want it to just manage my storage in a way that makes my, the overall, the net effect is that my machine feels faster than it would if it just had a spinning drive, but it has the same amount of storage or more than it would if it, if it had an SSD. Yeah. Just an SSD. Now, be, be as is, fast as you would be if you were an SSD. But Give the me the storage yeah. and re- yeah, sl- or, yeah, yeah. Of, of the even if it's not 100% there, you just want it to beat both of them. You want it to be better. You want it to have more capacity than SSD <laughs> yeah. only and faster than the spinning disk only. And in fact, some hard drive vendors sell these hybrid disks where they will send you a spinning disk with some flash RAM shoved onto it that uh, gives you a little bit of extra speed. They haven't had good reviews so far. Like that, you know, they're a little bit faster, but not so much to be worth the price, and certainly nowhere near a dedicated SSD. And it's like, why bother uh, getting the hybrid drive where you're not grilling it that much bang for your buck? Maybe you'd be even better just buying a faster spinning drive or something. So, the hybrids, even though they sound good, that's not quite working out. And the operating system to do it for you, you would think the operating system would have a good idea of frequently access files and it could dynamically push them back and forth, but Mac OS X does not do that for you. So, you're left to be like, you know, like the old world. We're used to like divvy up your data across seven disks where you have to manually manage it. Oh, I'll make a sim link to this here and I'll put my movies folder on this other drive, but my iTunes library. Regular people don't want to deal with that, first of all. It's impossible to deal with. And even people who know how to do it, it's just annoying as all hell to divvy up your stuff. And it's, it's like partitioning. Remember, you know, back in the day when you install Linux on your first PC, you're like, oh, I got to decide how much I want for swap and how much I want for user and how much I want for slash. And, you know, that's. No matter what you picked, you always end up picking wrong and running out of space in some partition, and the partitions weren't dynamically resizable, and you have to shuffle. It's just no one wants to deal with that crap. We just want it to be faster, better, and work all the time. Um, so unless you have a really, really easy scenario, like you're a video editor and you know SSD for everything except for video files, which are on the big honkin' drive, right? Then maybe you have a fighting chance of having a scenario where you can, you know, do a division that you know will always make sense and you're fine. But if you're a regular user who's doing mm. some stuff on iPhones, you got an iPhone photo library, you play games, you do, if you're doing using it as a general purpose computer, there's no way you're gonna come up with a sane arrangement of data that's gonna be pleasing. So when I think about adding an SSD or something to a laptop, all I can think about is, oh how the hell would I divide stuff up? It would just, you know, I'm wasting all this money and I'm just never, am I going to get the performance I want if I end up putting stuff on there that's not the stuff that I always wanted? And for backups, now you have to back up two drives because it doesn't look like a unified drive from the perspective of the OS. So it's just, it's just something I don't want to deal with. Uh, and that's where I come down on, on you doing that. I, don't, I think the, the administrative hassle would not be worth the performance gain that you would get. Either do all spinning drives or all SSD. And if you can't do all SSD yet because performance, reliability, price, just wait it out. You know, it'll happen. Five, ten more years, maybe mm-hmm. less. Yeah, so the, the the reliability concerns of SSDs, like I heard anecdotally, but this was the first post that I saw like that tried to be vaguely, uh, you know, comprehensive about looking at the actual data. And uh, those guys really do have a lot of experience with SSDs uh, relative to the average person. And, and they're still running. I mean, obviously, reliability is getting better and better all the time. So this, this article could already be out of date because like maybe this new batch of SSDs they bought are all going to last three years. I don't know, but this this situation makes me want to still continue to stay away from SSDs. Again, unless some SSD vendor wants to buy me unlimited SSDs for my personal use, I will gladly take them up on that offer. You almost feel like, though, if, if you are doing it in a split, the way a lot of people are with, uh, you know, by installing an SSD as the boot drive with the OS on it in a in a MacBook, that you could say, well, you know, 
I'm, I'm comfortable with my data living here. And, and if, you know what, if this failure rate is true, if this thing really does just, just go belly up after X number of days, well, you know what? I mean, it's just, it's just the OS. It's just the, uh, just the OS, no big deal. And, you know, you could even put a big enough, uh, a big enough standard drive in there that you could use super duper and clone that drive to the other drive daily. And that way, if, if, if you do, you, then you just boot up from the other drive. Yeah, I still, no downtime. Like, even, even though I said if someone's going to pay for it, I'll take them all. It, it's just annoying. Like you're going to lose some data, even if all you lose is a paragraph of something that you were writing. Like because Dropbox didn't get a chance to save it before the drive. You know, like no matter how you protect yourself, if you're doing cloud-based storage, like there's always a chance that the thing goes bad just at the wrong second and you lose some data. And even if you only lose a paragraph. First of all, that pisses me off just to lose a paragraph data. And second of all, now I got to go through a restore process. Even if I have perfectly good backups, it takes a long time to restore. And I was in the middle of working, and I don't want to deal with like, oh, now it's like, oh, you can't use the computer. I'm restoring. Yeah, the SSD went bad again. Uh, it's not fun. That's not what I want to do with computers. I want them to be less work over time, not more work. Um, and so, you know, SSDs I'm not sure about. Unless it was on an air, and then you again, you really have no choice. I'm not. It's not like I'm saying I want a spinning disk in my iPad. Obviously, there are applications where it's just you have to go with that. Anything else would be awful. But desktop and laptops are not quite there yet. And someone was pointing out that today is International Verify Your Backup Day because it's Friday the thirteenth. Friday thirteenth. Yeah. If anyone wants to do that, feel free. I, I I find myself accidentally booting into my backup now that I'm playing a little bit more games in Windows because yeah. if I forget to hold down the option key or forget what I have my startup disk set for. I will boot into my super duper clone and I'll start using it for like two seconds. And then I'll be like, wait a second, something's not right here. Like I'll just notice like the file that I made, you know, today that hadn't been backed up yet isn't on the desktop or like a doc icon is not where it used to be or something like that. And I'll realize I'm booted into the backup from last night. You know, it's, it's, it's bad to do that, by the way, because if you don't notice and you use it for a day, now you're screwed. Because now you've like got, now you've got a split brain scenario. People can Wikipedia that where you've got some changes on one, some changes on the other. So. Yeah, be careful with your startup disk. I want to talk to you about startup disk, but I think we should do it in the after dark. All right. Or, or even if you know, if it doesn't become a full, yeah, we'll do a full after dark today. You sound like your voices can hold up for it, so maybe we should end here. You're just getting used to the croak. Yeah, I think we covered lots of things. Yeah. So um, we'll, we'd like to say thanks to everybody for tuning in. Uh, please do remember to check out FreshBooks.com. When you're signing up for your free account, put hypercritical as how you heard about them and you can win a cake, a real cake. And thanks to the Omni Group, omnigroup.com. You can check out OmniFocus and they, they have a ton of other, I mean, they really embraced the whole iOS platform thing. These are serious, serious apps that come with a lot of support and uh, Mac geekery. So go check out omnigroup.com. And uh, if you haven't rated this show in iTunes, if you enjoy it, I know that we have way more listeners than ratings, so there are a few people who haven't rated it. It really does help us. It helps us uh, new people find out about the show, and it helps us out a lot with sponsors because they can look at how the show is rated, and uh, they want to sponsor, and that means we can keep doing the show. So thanks very much. You can follow John on Twitter at Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. There's no Z. And I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter, and we would, uh, we'll see you next week. We may do it a different day because I'm, I'm probably going to be on literally on the road driving uh, during next week's show, but we, it will still come out Friday. We may record it earlier. However, the show will still air Friday. Uh, so uh, just really don't pay any attention to what I just said because it won't affect you if you listen to this on a podcast. But if you listen live, it may change. So check the schedule. And that's it. Any, any parting words, John? 
nothing. You covered it. Okay, I covered it. Follow John on Twitter. That's where to go. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.